You're listening to the Cycling Podcast. Eightieth birthday of Robert De Niro, star of The Deer Hunter, The Godfather Part Two, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Silver Linings Playbook, and a multitude of other silver screen classics. And also, speaking of other virtuoso acting performances by American lead males, welcoming you on the twenty-fifth anniversary of Bill Clinton infamously telling a grand jury about his, in his words, improper physical relationship with his intern, Monica Lewinsky. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the co-host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast, which I'll be engaging in an entirely appropriate non-physical relationship with my running mate, Lionel Burney. And also a bit later, welcoming a good fella who will hopefully play the Robert De Niro to my Ray Liotta and Lionel's Joe Pesci. Lionel, how are you? (laughs) Wow, convoluted. Convoluted that, Daniel. Yeah, very well. Slightly aggrieved to be cast as... Joe Pesci in this pantomime of a podcast. Kind of the the, the angry one on the hair trigger. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, typecasting. Who knows? Lionel, um, what's been going on last week? What has been going on? Well, the last week is just a cue for the, the news roundup, which could be not bumpy. Yet, not, not yet. Not yet. It was yet. more of a social oh. sort of... These, these were the social platitudes that we traditionally engage in before the news roundup. I, I kind of feel all at sea, really. The World Championships is over. The Vuelta is still to come. We're in a, a very odd week of, well, four stage races all running concurrently. I just don't know what to watch and when to watch it, how to plan my afternoon. There needs to be some kind of thought go into this. If we're going to have so many races all taking place at once, there needs to be some kind of context. Maybe there needs to be a sort of an overall classification of some kind, a subjective. I've been watching the cycle ball and and, and the artistic cycling from the World Championships. At cycle ball, pretty easy to tell who wins. It's the team that scores the most goals. But the artistic cycling just seems to be, you know, scores made up. Um, off the top of one's head so I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that there's there's obviously rules to it but uh, maybe with these four stage races going on there should be a, a super classification where somebody arbitrarily or not so arbitrarily decides um, you know which riders are leading the the, the Burgos Limousin Arctic Race Denmark super classification Portugal I would oh, say Portugal the Grandissima. I would say that's the ultimate hipster's choice this week. Although, uh, Vuelta Burgos is hard to resist with that purple leader's jersey, um, which was taken by Primus Roglic this afternoon. Uh, nothing, nothing surprising there. The Tour of Portugal is kind of your, it's, well, it's your kind of hipster classic, isn't it, really? Um, I mean, back in the day, we've talked about this before, haven't we? But back in the day, it was a, a proper three-week stage race, wasn't it? There was a period where it certainly was two weeks. Yeah, 20-something stages, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I know, there we are. I mean, I've I've forgotten it because I haven't seen any of that, actually. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a strange... Well, we're all waiting for the welter to start, aren't we, a week on Saturday. And I suppose it will all make sense once they get going from Barcelona. The, the season, the, the balance, equilibrium will be uh, restored and we'll know where we are again. For what we're calling on the podcast uh, in a football reference, which will probably agree with some listeners, El Clásico, the the Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. And of course, the famous 
Spanish football. Can you call it a derby because they're not from the same city? But the big sort of grudge match is called El Clasico between Real Madrid and Barcelona. Hence why we're calling it. I think we can get away with that, but I think it will be a push if next year when the Tour de France starts in uh, Florence, Florence, home of Fiorentina, and finishes in Nice. I mean, that's a real kind of Europa League group stage match, isn't it? It's not quite El Clasico. No, and it is, in the world of this year is going to be a classic because, you know, we've got a fantastic field, great route. We'll talk a bit more about that later in the podcast with our guest um i think i'll tell the listeners who the guest is going to be at the end of the news roundup so lionel do you want to take it away with that roundup i will try to keep it to the headlines daniel uh, first of all in the world championships there's uh, six things i'd like to mention from the world championships first of all lotta kopecky became the first belgian to win the women's world championship road race for 50 years that's a stat that even took me by surprise when we recorded arrivé uh, shortly after the race on sunday prior to that the time trial the women's time trial was won by Chloe Digert, who repeated her 2019 victory in Yorkshire. Remember, she had that terrible crash in 2020 in the time trial as well, but uh, bouncing back with a second rainbow jersey. And then there was the incident with Marlon Royce, wasn't there? We talked a little bit about this in Arrivé as well. She stopped before the second time check. She's one of the pre-race favourites, and uh, she cited mental burnout for her decision to stop. But she bounced back at the weekend and uh, figured prominently in the road race where she was fourth. Remco Evenepoel swapped one rainbow jersey for another, winning the men's time trial ahead of Filippo Ganna and the very impressive performance by 19-year-old British rider Josh Tarling, who was the bronze medalist. Brandon McNulty of the USA was an impressive fourth and Walt Van Aert a slightly below par fifth, I would say. Uh, On to the mountain biking, the Ineos Grenadiers riders did the double in the men's and women's Olympic distance cross-country. Pauline Ferrand-Prevot of France won the women's race and Tom Pidcock won the men's. Now, there was a bit of controversy that, well, it erupted before the race, but Pidcock weighed in afterwards. Uh, The UCI arbitrarily bumped Matthew van der Poel and Peter Sagan up the start grid, didn't they? Uh, Didn't do van der Poel too much good because he crashed on the first lap and was out of the race. Spookily reminiscent his crash, I thought, of the one in the... Uh, in the road race in Glasgow because he went down on a right-hand corner. It appeared like his back wheel went from under him again. Another couple of notable performances. Uh, Ben Wiggins, son of Bradley, of course, took silver in the men's junior time trial behind the Australian Oscar Chamberlain. And Alexander Vinokurov, world champion at last in his 50s, winning the Grand Fondo for the 50 to 54 age category. I mean, I'm not too sure about this. I know... Uh, this is a relatively new thing, isn't it? The Grand Fondo, but ex-pros. Quite a number. Yeah. Yeah, there were quite a number of illustrious participants and winners. Uh, Sylvan Adams, the Israel Premier Tech magnate. Mm. He was the winner in his category, wasn't he? He was thrilled about it. That's right, yes. And, well, the rumours are swirling now that on the back of a successful World Championships, Edinburgh perhaps might be in line to host the Grand Depart of the Tour de France at some point. Christian Prudhomme was in Scotland last weekend. I do remember back in 2012, I was covering a Glasgow round of the Track World Cup and we were gathered together, the sort of group of British journalists working at that event, gathered together and briefed by, among others, British Cycling, that 
the Grand Depart for 2014 was going to happen in Edinburgh and we excitedly wrote our stories and uh, my story in, in, appeared in the Sunday Times and of course Yorkshire very much swooped in and stole Edinburgh Thunder so uh, we shall have to see how that pans out and finally can't let things pass without mentioning the cycle ball Daniel I'm amazed that you've not been gripped by this I found it strangely compelling it's a simple game of two teams of two players and at the end the Germans win because they won both the men's and women's gold medals moving on to the racing as I said there are four five if you're Daniel elite stage races going on at the moment the Tour du Limousin in France is underway uh, the Vuelta a Burgos is the big warm-up race for the Vuelta a España. And Primoz Roglic has won today's stage and is in the overall lead. The Tour of Denmark, Fabio Jakobsen won yesterday as we're recording. Still waiting to see who wins stage three there. And the Arctic race of Norway gets underway today as well. So lots of racing to watch as we build up towards the Vuelta a España. There was also a one-day race in the French Cup, the Poly Normande, which was won by Arnaud de Lee. Now, I was going to try to sum up the transfers that have happened this week. We were saying a couple of weeks ago before the World Championships that the August 1st deadline where the transfer window is flung open with a flourish, it was all pretty quiet, wasn't it? But it's really gathered pace this week. I've split some of the transfers. I think this is the top 13 transfers of the week. I can't be exhaustive about it because we'll be here all day, but... Three that are kind of confirmation of things we already knew or suspected. Teo Gegenhart will leave Ineos to join Little Trek. Mikel Lander going from Bahrain to Sudal Quickstep. Daniel, I know you were very impressed with the social media launch video, the reveal video that Sudal Quickstep put out. Oh, thanks for that Hail Mary, Lionel. Thanks for the <laughs> hospital pass. Um no um announcement videos we could do a long podcast couldn't we on announcement videos and whether they have had their day or whether they require a bit of a rethink i think there was a moment in football a few years ago when there was a sort of consensus set in that the shark had been thoroughly jumped uh, with announcement videos and, and everyone sort of took a bit of a step back it feels like that might have to happen in cycling yeah the lander to sudal quick step video was like a comedy sketch without a punchline wasn't it that would be my take on it uh, sorry to be a bit harsh and Matteo jorgensen movistar to jumbo visma as i think ian boswell certainly heavily hinted during the tour de france that was the the move that we were expecting uh teo gagan is part of the ineos exodus danny martinez is going to bora hansgrohe Ben Tulip is going to Jumbo Visma. There may be some others. This clamour, uh, seeming clamour for uh, Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos Grenadiers to purchase Remco Evenepoel or the whole Quickstep team, Sudal Quickstep team, is is kind of gathering pace. I mean, there has to be some kind of method behind uh, the, the seeming madness of letting so many um, Grand Tours type riders depart all in one go. There must be a grand plan. Have you any idea what it is, Daniel? No, uh, not really. I've heard for about a few riders who thought they were they were going to Ineos have been told that there is a hold up and which might be an indefinite hold up and that they should 
possibly look elsewhere for employment next year and um, yeah suggesting there's something bubbling behind the scenes but I've also heard lots to the effect that Remco Evenepoel is definitely staying at Sudal Quickstep next year and um, it's as you were so but I think we're going to find out more in the next few hours in fact Lionel. Oh interesting uh, Lidl Trek of been engaged in some kind of game of supermarket sweeps certainly a bit of a shopping spree Teo Gagan Hart as I've mentioned is going there but also Andrea Baggioli from Sudal Quickstep Patrick Conrad from Bora Hansgrohe and Simone Consoni from Cofidis the women's team's getting in on the act as well Clara Capone is going from uh, Francis Dejeur to Lidl there are some sprinters on the move as well. Pascal Ackerman is going to Israel Premier Tech from UAE. Giacomo Nitsolo is going from Israel Premier Tech to Q36.5. Perhaps not a surprise because he rode for Doug Ryder's team before, didn't he, when they were uh, Dimension Data. Max Valscheid is going from Cofidis to Jaco Alula. And a big one, really, Fabio Jakobsen going from Sudal Quickstep to Team DSM. Cut a fairly unhappy figure at Sudal Quickstep during the Tour de France, not least because of that crash on the motor racing circuit. And, uh, well, subsequently failed to win a stage, but he's heading to pastures new. There are quite a lot of more transfer business that I could mention but one of the others that stands out Warren Barguil going from Arkea to Le Retirement Corner at Team DSM following in the wheel tracks of Roman Bardet that was one that caught my eye a couple of bits of news relating to the Tour of Britain, which is coming up very soon. It starts on September the 3rd with a stage from Altrincham to Manchester. The 2021 winner, Wout van Aert, appeared to confirm at the World Championships that he will be on the start list there for Jumbo Visma. And last year's winner, Gonzalo Sedano of Movistar, will be back again. Remember that he won when the race was shortened. Uh, the last three stages weren't held because of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, just briefly summarise the route for those who don't know. After that start uh, from Altrincham to Manchester, there's a stage around Wrexham. I uh, wonder if uh, the Hollywood stars own Wrexham Football Club will put an appearance and uh, maybe get interested in cycling. Who knows? Then there's a stage from Goole to Beverley in East Yorkshire, Sherwood Forest to Newark, Felixstowe, then Southend to Harlow, Tewkesbury to Gloucester, and then the final stage to Carefilly. And to wrap up the news roundup, a bit of a bumper news roundup this week, but a couple of doping stories. The first is uh, Michel Hessmann, a 22-year-old German riding for Jumbo Visma, has tested positive for diuretic in an out-of-competition test in mid-June. Now, Hessmann was part of Jumbo Visma's Giro d'Italia team. He finished 33rd overall himself while supporting Primus Roglic on his way to the overall victory. Uh, Hessmann was third in the Tour de l'Avenir in 2022. The team issued a statement saying that the diuretic was in a medication that Hessman had been taking. No details of the substance have been disclosed, but he has been suspended by the team pending the doping investigation. Do you know any more about this at the moment, Daniel? Not too much. It seems as though the test was performed by the German anti-doping agency and because the UCI has not communicated about this as yet. Well, the other big news is that Dr. Richard Freeman, who was the Team Sky and British Cycling doctor has been banned for four years by the UK anti-doping authorities uh, for possession of a banned substance, namely 30 sachets of Testo gel, uh, which were delivered to the British Cycling HQ at the National Cycling Centre in Manchester in 2011. 
Uh, he worked for British Cycling at the 2012 and 2016 Olympics and also for Team Sky for a number of years. Freeman's defence had been uh, that he'd bought the tester gel to treat Shane Sutton's erectile dysfunction, a claim that Sutton had denied and a defence that was dismissed by a medical practitioner's tribunal a couple of years ago. His medical licence was revoked after that hearing and, well, now he's been formally banned from... Uh, sport for four years for this doping offence. Now, Team Sky and British Cycling boss at the time was Dave Browsford. And if you remember, Daniel, way back before the story of the tester gel being delivered to BCHQ had kind of uh, made its way into the public domain, there was also the question of uh, the jiffy bag, the package that was couriered to the Critium du Dauphiné in 2011. Um, the, sub, the contents of the Jiffy bag was unknown. If you recall, Richard Moore and I met Dave Brailsford around 2016 in the wake of the Fancy Bears hack, which also revealed Bradley Wiggins' therapeutic use exemptions, uh, which were timed before several of the grand tours that he rode and well all of these stories are kind of linked together in a certain way aren't they because dr freeman was the team sky and british cycling doctor at the time um i contacted dave browsford to ask if he was going to comment on dr freeman being suspended for four years and he replied to say no i've said all there was to say um, but I'm not really sure that is necessarily the case, is it? Because we still don't know who the tester gel was actually for. Uh, we don't know what was in the jiffy bag. There's an awful lot of things we don't know about um, the circumstances surrounding the TUEs that were applied for on Bradley Wiggins' behalf before the 2011 Dauphiné, the 2011 Tour de France, the 2012 Tour de France and the 2013 Giro d'Italia. And uh, it's a fairly unsatisfactory state of affairs that we have a doctor banned for a doping offence, but uh, nothing, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the story, the trail, everything ends with Dr. Freeman at this point. Um, we, we don't know who the tester gel was for, and there are still more questions to be answered, I would suggest. Yeah, Lionel, just one thing I'd say, I suppose, the great overriding takeaway is that when this project was launched and even before that when the whole sort of lottery funded master plan for British Cycling was laid out in the late 90s there was a lot of talk implicit and explicit about legacy uh, now almost a quarter of a century on evidence of that legacy is everywhere for example in the world championships we just had in Scotland I'd also say in the sort of dizzying number of British riders on world tour pro conti conti division teams lower down than that club teams in France Spain Belgium to an extent that was well unthinkable when you and I started covering the sport however if we're going to talk about legacy we also have to say emphatically now that a huge question mark is suspended over some of the main sort of catalytic events in this explosion of interest in cycling in the UK professional cycling. I mean, you may say it's it's not a question mark, it's a certainty. Richard Freeman has been found guilty, but I think we, and I personally believe a majority of people who worked and rode for British Cycling Team Sky in those years have doubts about what that means. Some will, some people um, will join the dots between the Jiffy Bag, Gert Linders, Freeman, the timing of this testosterone delivery, Tin and Lock, Henau, Froome salbutamol case and his inability to regain his team sky form post-injury all of that 
and they'll see the outline of a sort of Festina scale conspiracy. Others won't see the verdict as a smoking gun, but they'll sort of detect a distinct whiff of cordite around the whole project. Whereas some may insist that Freeman was just a rogue actor and they still believe his version. They'll even sort of st still believe his version of why the testosterone was ordered, i.e. it was for Shane Sutton. But either way, anyway, part of the legacy we talked about is tarnished and I think will be forever because if there was someone out there who could have cleared the whole thing up, proven that it was all a mix-up or even not as bad as it looks, they would have done so by now. So that's the legacy and I suppose the tragedy of it is that a lot of reputations that don't deserve to be tainted are now tainted by association. Yeah, I mean, I went back to that interview, the conversation, whatever it was between Dave Brailsford and myself and Richard from 2016. It was obviously, you know, in the sort of the white heat of that Fancy Bears hack and, uh, you know, Brailsford was, you know, well, he's... he's, he's his big thing has always been to say that while there's, you know, an investigation ongoing, there's a limit to what he can say. And one quote sort of leapt out. And I mean, this episode is still on our feed if people want to go back to, uh, I think it was October 2016 and listen to it. Uh, the episode is called Dave Brailsford Speaks to the Cycling Podcast. But he said fairly, when we were talking specifically about the, the Jiffy Bag, which at the time felt like the kind of the, if you like, the smoking gun, uh, uh, he said, I think it's important that this is put to an independent third party who can absolutely interview everybody. They can go through and they can determine if there was any wrongdoing or not. And from my point of view, that's exactly what we need to happen. Well, that has happened now. And Dr. Freeman has been not only struck off as a doctor, but banned by the sports anti-doping authorities. And so we kind of have a conclusion to the case. And and I would say that, uh, you know, it is unfortunate that a lot of the people involved in that era have moved on uh, from direct day-to-day -day involvement in cycling, including Dave Brailsford, who, of course, has been spending most of this year working for um, Nice Football Club, which is also owned by Ineos, and trying to mastermind the takeover of Manchester United on Jim Ratcliffe's behalf. Um, he did show up at the Tour de France for a couple of days, uh, but it would be very interesting to hear his version of events. And I don't really think that he did say everything that needed to be said. He did say everything that he felt there was to say, I have no doubt, but I don't think uh, we have an adequate explanation of what went on during that time. Well, Lionel, that's the news roundup, very eventful, packed news roundup. After the break, after the short commercial interlude, we're going to return with our guest this week, who is, well, look, some of our listeners will already know who I'm talking about. He is the Jayco Alula team director of high performance and racing. He is, uh, he doesn't get a fancy Dan intro this week because we've had so much to talk about with the news roundup, but he's a good friend of the cycling podcast, long term listener participant and um well good fella so we'll be back after the break with matt white shoot uh, shoot at du peloton cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack please that's seb pk the voice of radio tour to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by linkedin jobs 
If you run a small or medium-sized business, it can feel quite high stakes when you're on the lookout for new members of staff because, well, you've only got one vacancy to fill and you want to make sure that you have access to the best qualified candidates and ultimately fill that role with the best possible person for the job. And that's where LinkedIn Jobs really comes into its own because it helps companies find the right people for your team more quickly and crucially for free because it's free to post a job ad on LinkedIn Jobs and it's very easy too. You write your job description, who you're looking for, what their role will entail and then you add the job and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to help spread the word that you're hiring. And then when the applications come flooding in, you can use simple tools such as screening questions to make it easy to focus on the candidates who've got just the right skills and experience for your organisation. And that way you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and ultimately hire for the job. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs as number one in delivering quality people over the leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you to find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle. You can post your job ad for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, before we hear from today's special guest, I just wanted to follow on from the story about Dr. Richard Freeman and Team Sky, uh, draw people's attention to a series that I wrote and recorded for Friends of the Podcast. It's called Covering Team Sky, and it's a four-part series that you can listen to if you are a friend of the podcast. It covers uh, the ups and downs and the ins and outs of covering Team Sky from, well, before their inception in 2010 through to... Well, the four parts cover the period up to the end of 2012. And I think I'm due to add another part at some point. Maybe over the close season, I'll get round to part five of that series. But the first four parts are on the Friends of the Podcast feed. Now, if you want to sign up, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Well, no Robert De Niro. Um, we did allude to his 80th birthday earlier in the episode, um, but we are talking to you. We're talking to you, Matt White. Awful, awful Robert De Niro impression. Matt, you've been at the World Championships. You've been there wearing many different hats. You've been wearing a gilet as well. I saw a picture of you wearing a gilet, handing out bottles. I don't know about you. I don't know about you chaps generally, but I'm, I'm, I feel a lot more comfortable watching the Vuelta a Burgos, you know, the sort of hipster niche backwater Spanish stage race than I did feel following some of the world, some of the super world championships. Um, but I see that it's gone down very well with everyone. That's the consensus that it was big, roaring success. Um, Matt, how was Scotland? The only bit of the super worlds that, that I saw was the road uh, because obviously it was so big that uh, the Australian team, which I think was near on 300 people were there, but we were, I think there were three or four different hotels. So, the, the road team from the juniors uh, through to the elite men were staying in one hotel in between Edinburgh and, uh, and Glasgow in Strathclyde. Track and BMX were at a hotel uh, in Glasgow. And then the, uh, the paras, the mountain bike, and uh, some of the enduro stuff, I, I didn't see any of them at all. So I, I'm assuming the paras were probably in the same hotel uh, as the, the, the other trackies. And the the downhill and the mountain bike and that stuff, I they were I think I think it was at Port Lincoln or some uh, the name of the town, but it was it was far away, so we didn't have any contact with, uh, with those people at all. So, but it was a huge group from Australia, uh, and a big undertaking from the organisations and from all everyone involved. But uh, look, I, break it up a little bit. I, I wasn't a big fan of the courses, 
But I think uh, from the outside and what the racing, it sounds like it was a success uh, as far as from the fans' point of view. Matt, qualify that for us, the courses, because there was this disconnect. Um, I think everyone's talked about it. The fact that, okay, it, it yielded fantastic entertainment um, and really selective races, um, particularly the women's and men's main road races. But it just sort of offended people's sensibilities. And maybe we talked about this kind of snobbery, really. Um, it's not what we expect of a road race. No. Well, uh, the, the three events that uh, I had direct responsibility for was firstly the, the mixed relay team's time trial. So the, the mixed relay team's time trial, it was the same as the men's road race, minus two two little climbs, but, but it had some flatter extensions either side to the left and to the right. So if, if anyone saw the the, the road races, it, that's there was a very very technical course, and I was very late calling for uh, to working for the world championships. And when I did have a look at the, uh, I did, and I didn't have a chance to look at the courses until three days before when we flew in the day before the official uh, recon, is I was pretty scarred by the the course. Like you know, <laughs> it, I think I had quite the experience of just seeing it. <laughs> well, I looked at it on on Veloview, and then when I saw it. In person, I'd heard rumours that the road race was like the World Kermes Championships, and then to do that course on team time on time trial bikes, which was and it was also you know it's Glasgow any time of the year. There's always potential for rain. It was not was not a course for 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 a team's time trial. I think it was 48 corners in 19 kilometres. There was numerous crashes. It was technical. It was a city centre circuit. Yeah, on disc wheels at high speed. I was. I was not a big fan. We and speaking our team alone, you know, Luke Luke slapped off on the first corner, wrapped himself into a barricade. Uh, there was another couple of uh, another couple of big crashes from other people, um, and I, I was not a big fan of the of that team's time trial course. The, the time trial course in Sterling, I think they were great. I think that was a, they, were, they were great circuits. They're a little bit of everything, uh, a little bit of flat, a hard finish. They were safe. They were technically challenging courses, but not too much. And then the road race, well, the road race was something we'd never seen before in the in world and at, at this level. Uh, it was a uh, depending which event you're in, point to point. So you come in, you came into Glasgow from different starting points, depending on the juniors or the under twenty threes or the men, and that, that was fine. But then when we hit the circuits, uh, as we first saw in the men's road race, it was yeah, it was it was pretty hectic. It was pretty hectic. We're talking about a city centre criterion. On a course of you know, 15 or 16 kilometers with you know, 40, 40 to 50, I can't remember the exact number, 40 to 50 corners per lap. So, and and you, you saw a little bit of rain, a little bit of rain on that circuit made it even more treacherous, but uh, it certainly made for entertaining racing, but uh, it certainly didn't bode well for, uh, for a lot of people getting around there in one piece or finishing. For, as entertainment value, I think uh, people, we, we, can't, we can't argue that it was, uh, it was a success. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, if you wanted to disincentivize the UCI from offering a course like that in the future, then unfortunately, the peloton, the men's peloton in particular, well, and the women's, um, they didn't really do that. They did sort of incentivize the UCI to do something similar in the, the future. Um, Lionel, um, Super Worlds, um, hit or miss? A hit in a lot of senses, but I think uh, the challenge will be finding places to host it on a, an ongoing basis. I mean, the next one is going to be in 2027 in Haute-Savoie in uh, France. So they've already got a host 
lined up for the next one. Whether it continues beyond that, I think will come down to whether there are enough places that have the facilities and the budget, frankly, to host it. I mean, the overall budget for the whole of the UCI Superworlds was supposed to be somewhere in the region of 40 to 50 million pounds initially. And then that rose uh, quite significantly as costs increased over the, the period of time from when the worlds were awarded and when they took place. So it's a huge investment for a place. Um, but in terms of uh, the you know the TV entertainment, the, the road races I thought were fantastic to watch. They weren't typical. I mean, I don't think. Well, we talked about this last week. I think that once in a while is uh, is great to mix it up. But um, I do wonder whether uh, some of the other events got as much of a spotlight on them as they might have done. You could argue that maybe the track would have, in the old days, you know, of it being held uh, in the springtime, there's a lot more focus on it, it felt like, um, in that time slot in the calendar. It's always a bit of a funny year, the year before the Olympics anyway, isn't it? Um, But, you know... Maybe people uh, will have seen more of the BMX, the mountain biking. Uh, I'm not sure how many people went to watch the cycle ball, but that certainly looked pretty good on the um, on the coverage that I watched. I mean, knew nothing about it beforehand, uh, know very little about it now, other than that the Germans have won, as I mentioned in the news roundup. But I think as a um, as an exercise, you know, the UCI have obviously said it was a big success. And I guess the numbers on the balance sheet will be the final arbiter of that, won't they? Uh, I mean, I can't speak to a lot of this because um, a lot of these events you mentioned didn't get much attention from me and never get any attention from me, unfortunately, including track cycling. But um, that aside, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they manage the next time in France. We're in sort of retrospective mood. Matt, we haven't had you on for a few months. I think the last time was before the season when we were talking about what was on your team's horizons. Maybe we talked about sort of recruitment as well. We'll talk a bit more about that later in the episode about what you're doing at the moment in view of next season. But let's talk a bit about the Tour de France, Matt. Well, Tour de France, I think was pretty good for your team. Well, very good, in fact. You didn't get the stage win with Dylan Kronenwegen that you wanted but it started well the tour certainly on a GC front with Simon Yates I remember talking to you at the Giro Matt and you talked about the first weekend in the Basque country and you should have put the idea in my head about Simon Yates having a a good chance in that first day but then I sort of went away and over the next three or four weeks you know you were thinking about Pogacar and the other riders who were going to the other sort of favorites for overall victory who might come to the fore in that stage and I sort of persuaded myself that actually Simon might come in fourth or fifth that day but he did a lot better than that and um, and then after that I mean from my point of view Matt the, the story of the tour and your team's tour was sort of Simon Yates riding really well really really consistently and but being quite sort of self effacing self-deprecating about how he sort of down on how well it was all going and then finally sort of realizing at the end that actually he'd ridden a brilliant tour de france going into the tour that we had the, the two two specific goals one was to get dylan a stage win and we i think we we had our issues early on with positioning uh in the race there we came up against you know, a very informed uh, Philipson with 
no doubt, you know, the best lead-out man maybe ever in history, who is now our current world champion. So we had, we had our hands full. We had our hands full. One, we had to get the timing right, and two, we had to come up against uh, Vanderpool, who was dropping who was dropping uh, Phillips and off in a very good position. And you know, when when someone starts to get wins early in the Tour de France, we saw this with Cav back in the day. When a sprinter gets his mojo, then a lot of the other rivals then start looking at that train. And then they all start parking up and high and, and looking for that wheel. And I think that's a mistake that some teams get into. And, and it's the, to the advantage of the, the informed sprint train. And, and, and our battle was to, to, to put Dylan in, in perfect position timing-wise because we knew he, has, he, had, he had and has the speed to beat Philipson head-to-head. We, we've seen it in the past, but we've got to get it 100% right. And uh, we came close on a couple of occasions. And uh, and at the end of the day, Phillips and, and the, the Phillips and Vanderpool combination was just too much for us. Uh, we weren't able to get to get that stage win. So that's that's that that side of the, uh, of the ambitions. And the other one was to to look for stage wins along the way with other people. We gave some other people some opportunities: Lawson Craddock, Chris Harper, some other guys jumping down the road to to try to win uh, in the second and the third week. I think Lawson came up with a fourth place on the stage there the day before the second rest day. I can't remember where it was there. It was just just outside Mijev um, because uh, that was, I knew that was where we were staying in the, near the rest day. I can't remember the name of the climb. Obviously, Simon had a bit of a wobble wobble in the back end of the second week. But the most uh, pleasing thing for us is the way he came through that last week. And uh, yeah, I think at one, st- at one stage, the day before the second rest day, we were back in eighth place. You know, with with five days of racing to go, and in the end, we pushed hard and and nearly ended up on the podium. And uh, I think it was a success as far as the way Simon raced throughout the three weeks. If he'd beaten his brother on the opening stage, everything would have changed, wouldn't it? We would have been in the yellow jersey straight away. Yeah, he was coming up head to head with that with Adam a few times during that race at, at this year's tour. Adam got the best of him. Uh, it's simple as that. He, Adam Adam had a brilliant tour. Simon had a great tour, and uh, both I think finished a real, uh, really, really solid. Third and fourth place. You know, Adam's first time he's arrived on the podium of of a Grand Tour. He finished fourth, fourth in the Welter a couple of years ago. Actually, a lot of people probably wouldn't even realise that's the first time that Adam Yates has won a stage in any Grand Tour. Was the was the was the opening stage of of the Tour de France. Yeah, for a rider of his class and ability, he um he's won and has won a lot of bike races. But that was his first stage winning a Grand Tour. And Simon obviously has ten or eleven stages in uh, in Grand Tours. But, and, and, a, and a Grand Tour winning the Welter, but uh, that's he, that's his best performance at the Tour de France on general classification. So we racked up a lot of points. We got a lot of exposure for our sponsors, and uh, and we were there and thereabouts. I think we had seventeen top ten places in the in the Tour. So we we were we were one of the teams that were featuring in the race day in day out. Matt, speaking to Simon in particular um, towards the end of the race, and as I said, when it, it felt to me as though he'd sort of. Any kind of, I, I don't know whether he was frustrated that he wasn't closer to Vingegaard or earlier in the race, but um, I think that had sort of faded away. And I think he could, it seemed to me anyway, that he could sort of um, enjoy and savour the fact that he'd ridden a brilliant race. And it was the first one for a while, Grand Tour, where things had sort of come together. But he did talk a lot about that, about how in the past three or four years, he's had mainly bad luck. And it wasn't a case of, his confidence ever suffering really he always knew that he had the ability to to ride a three-week race like he did but would you would you subscribe to that as his kind of head ds that there'd never been a a sort of wobble or any kind of self-doubt with him um over the last three or four years no no i i 100 agree well if you look at last year 
last year well, it was a travesty. You know, we we went we put a lot of effort into the Giro to to win the Giro last year. He crashes in the Giro, has a knee injury that was lingering. We end up winning two stages, but he ended up having to go home because of the knee injury. Then we had a big break. Okay, let's let's refocus here. Let's focus on the Tour of Spain. He was in a good place. He was Himayuso and Rodriguez were the ones who were going to battle out for that third place for third place in in the Welter. And Rodriguez crashed and uh, done a good number on himself about four days to go. And Simon Simon woke up the day after the time trial with COVID, with their fever and COVID. So that you now two Grand Tours in a row being ruined by injury or, or COVID. And then the year before, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was two years ago. He'd sit, he still did finish third on the, on the in the Giro. Uh, but then, you know, if you look at 2020, was was probably the year that a really good chance for him to win the, the Giro in 2020. He showed that he running going into the race, you know, winning Tirano with one arm tied behind his back. He was in a good place. And then catching COVID 48 hours into the race and now... And we are testing positive two or three days later. So we've had we've had three grand tours out of five ruined by two two ruined by COVID and one ruined by a crash. So there has been a lot of bad luck. There has been a lot of a lot of hiccups and a lot of things he's had to get over. But as far as our belief in Simon and his belief, his self belief of what he's capable of doing, that hasn't waned. That hasn't waned at all. The, the, the only thing that's changed in that last two or three years is we've got some new people on the block. Who uh, who are riding at a very very high level? You know, Evanapool, you know it, where he was two or three years ago when Simon Simon was close to winning the Giro. You know, he was a young kid finding his way in the, in, in the professional ranks. Vindegaard as well. Vindegaard's you know where, where's he come from in three years? So we've got some new. Rodrik's been around a long time, but we've got we've got and Pochica as well. Yeah, you know, he's three or four years in, but we've got four GC riders who at the moment look a little bit of a step above. A step above everyone else, and uh, yeah, a bit of a changing of the guard uh, is coming. You just made me think of something actually, and I'm going to embarrass you because we spoke. You and I spoke one day. I think it was about a week to go in the tour. Obviously, it must have been before the fateful time trial, the Tour de France, and you know the hot topic in those days of the Tour de France was who was going to win. Obviously, Vingegaard versus Pogacar, and it was. We'd had this sequence of days where Pogacar had looked a stronger guy, and often he'd taken time, often he dropped Vingegaard. And I remember talking to you and you said, Pog's going to smash him, mate. Yep. <laughs> and you didn't smash him, mate. No, <laughs> um, no, 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 no. No, I mean, with hindsight, should we all have known? And and it was my suspicion before the tour that Vingegaard's level, his highest level, his ceiling was just a bit higher than Pogacar in the mountains. That was what I feared or suspected. And so it proved. Should we? Should we have known that? Should we all have known that all along? I don't know. I don't know. I think what we don't know, and, and 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 unless you're on the inside of UAE, is we don't know the training and the preparation that he had going in. You know, we all see see the Podge there as 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 what he is. He's one of the superstars of our sport, an incredible racer, a guy that every time he pins a number on wants to win. Has a very very different build up, normal a normally build up for the Tour de France, and I think. We're some people were seeing that maybe as a blessing in disguise this year that he wasn't able to race for a period there, but we don't. You know, we, we're only guessing how much his program in the month month of uh, month of May and June was disrupted. Obviously, you see things on social media. He couldn't he couldn't ride his bike for a period. He had a, a cast on. He was walking. He was running. He was doing this. He was doing that. Whereas Vindegaard had the perfect running. You know, he, obviously, he do, he doesn't race as much, and when he does race, it's it's a very light program. 
but he came in and we saw that he was you know, on top form in the Dauphiné, a very traditional type of build-up for the Tour de France. We knew he was going to go into the Tour de France well. What we didn't bank on and 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 is how disruptive the Podge's program was and how, how he's, you know, he, every, every time he raced in spring, he looked untouchable. He looked untouchable in spring. But having that operation, having that time off, yeah, and the way, and I think for me, the, the big thing is is how racing has changed. Uh, you know, there's no riding into the Tour de France anymore. And and the idea that we had from the outside is that we we had a pretty good suspicion that Jumbo were going to have to put him under the pump early, which they did. Uh, he had one day where he lost you know, a considerable amount of time. There was like oh, a minute that that stage there early in the race, but then he did start to come back, and and that was for us. We think, oh, yeah. When he does get it, when he's does get his mojo back and get a wriggle on, he is going to be hard to stop. What we probably underestimated in hindsight is is the disruptive nature of his build up to the race, and and at the end that's caught up with him. In terms of these GC riders who are on, you know, that top step, if you like, and we've got to assume that Evanapool is going to join them and at least be in that orbit next year. How does that kind of change your thinking when you've kind of got to do your own thing and hope that you can cling on to the coattails of the the best three riders in the world who, you know, might end up being that half step above? I mean, how how do you kind of, as a group of sports directors, how do you sort of plan for that? Well, you're planning a couple of things, you know, and that, that and that process is is pretty much starting now for next year. So you know, we our team is ninety nine percent built for next year. We've got a couple of spots we're going to fill. That's it. But then you go back and okay, what what's the team's goals? What are the sponsors' goals? What are what are your partners? What what are their ambitions? Is it you know, and every team's different. Okay, most teams it's about achieving some big results at the Tour de France. Maybe some some smaller teams, some teams with specific sponsors in Spain or Italy, maybe their big focus is the Giro. Or as we saw with a couple of teams this year, I th- well, I, I think Ineos, for me, Ineos probably knew that they didn't have a rider who would win the Tour de France. So I think Ineos put all their eggs into the Giro basket. I think they said, I think they sent a better team to the Giro than they did the Tour de France because I think they thought that they could win the Giro and with G. I think that they backed G. They thought he could win the Giro. And I suppose that they, they're also... They're not they're not stabbing in the dark either. They know that they know the numbers that Vindegaard, Rodjlik, uh Podjikar can put out, and there is only so many guys who can match that head to head at the Tour de France. So that's that's the first point. They might not have a team in next year's Tour de France, the way things are going. They might not have enough riders. Lionel might have to take his cycling shoes and helmet. The way things are going. <laughs> so that, that's that's the tour. That's the tour. But then you, you've got, you're also you're building a calendar. You're building a calendar, and I think. Those guys have peaks and troughs, peaks and troughs like everybody. Someone like Simon can beat those guys head to head at at certain races, at certain races. Yeah, you know, because Paris Nice or, or Basque Country or Catalonia or Tour Under or whatever those races, you know, not everyone is hitting those 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 peaks at the same time. And so you, you're balancing out the the ambitions and the goals of your team from a sponsor's perspective, from a, a a, a perspective of what are your riders motivated for the most? It's, it's, a, it's a balance, and then building a team, peeling a team backwards, and okay, this is this is what we need to do. This is how we're going to build our program with these big goals in mind, with these smaller goals in mind, and at the same time, developing young riders to give them an opportunity to shine and, and step into the big teams for the future. 
Matt, on that second shelf, so in the second tier, would you agree with, I mean, a lot of us sort of armchair quarterbacks have now come to the conclusion that because there is a clear, there is a bit of a gulf between maybe those three and then the next tier, um, sending a team which is with a lot of support riders for a guy who at best might finish fourth, fifth, sixth or seventh, is that a a fool's errand and is that we still see a lot of teams do it you know they go with a team almost as though they still think they can win the Tour de France when in reality everyone knows they're not going to but sending sort of four or five domestiques for a guy who can only finish fourth or fifth is that is that a kind of pointless exercise oh each to their own each to their own you've also got to balance out what riders you've got uh and you know not not everyone has the luxury of having a a world-class sprinter like we do uh, and, and other, maybe there's also something a little bit around the psychology of that athlete that that some leaders want to have a team that's totally devoted to them. Some other leaders don't need that, don't want that. If actually, it can work in reverse that they they don't want the sole pressure of leading that 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 organization for three weeks in July or three weeks in May. So it, there's a lot of things to take into account. But um, the the sport is changing and the sport is changing quick and you've got to be able to adapt to that week to week and also the style of the racing is is the for me is the is the been the big game changer we've seen in the last three years how aggressive how aggressive the racing is which I dare say it looks very entertaining from the outside but it is uh, it is changing and it's changing due to a few reasons but I think the young guys coming through the bunch and I think that the tour is. That's the that's the that's the benchmark or style of style of racing, and I think that style will filter down uh, into smaller races. I don't, I don't think we'll see that style at the Giro for the for the neck for the foreseeable future, and just because the Giro is just too physically tough, I think mean, you can't race the Giro like like people race the Tour de France. Just because I think there's four or five stages of this year's Giro were harder than the hardest stage of the, of the Tour de France as far as metres climbing, you know? I mean, I, I, again, you and I spoke about this at the Giro, Matt, but I just wonder whether RCS are going to go away. And they have been pretty, they've stuck to their guns over the last few years, but there was a real sort of groundswell of opinion this year on the race and after the race that it was too tough and that consequently, consequently the racing was a bit sterile. And I just wonder, particularly with the Vuelta, this year, we expect a fantastic edition of the Welter, you know, an incredible field, a field that Maravegna at the Giro would die for. And I just wonder whether they might have a bit of a radical rethink this winter. I've thought that before and they've not done it, but we'll see. Mm, well, it's it's that, getting that mix between Italian history and, pro, and and what they see as the Giro d'Italia and entertainment. If, you know, if, they, if they want entertainment, if they want aggressive racing door-to-door, then they're going to have to change because I don't think the, the everyone has a limit or the riders know they can't be racing for six hours or six and a half hours on stages with 5,000 metres of climbing. It's physically not possible. So uh, if, they, if they want to change, well, they need to change the course. So it, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one because the Italians are very, very proud of their event, as they should be. It's a beautiful event, but it all depends on what they're looking for. If they're looking for more entertainment, more panache, more uh, more aggressive style of racing. Well, I think they're going to have to tweak some uh, tweak some parts of the race for sure. You were talking about building the team for next year and how a lot of that work is already done. Some of that is already in the public public domain, isn't it? You've signed Lucas Postelberger, you've signed Maro Schmidt. I just wondered when does that kind of team building uh, work start? And I guess first of all, do you have a sense of where you sit? in the sort of league table economically? Is there a sense of, uh, you know, there are certain teams that 
that have a lot more money to play with and that you're you're in the kind of the money ball um if i can put it that way you're in a sort of money ball field where you've got to try and make that money work as best you possibly can yeah look look i'm certainly not privy to the budgets of the the 18 world tour teams uh we know roughly sort of where we sit there and what we've got to do is we've and, and we've implemented some some really exciting things for our organization starting next year so yeah, so we've we've announced we've signed Mara Schmidt, we've announced we've signed Max Walshide, we've signed uh, two very talented neo pros, David Di Preto from Italy and Anders Voldager from from Denmark, and there, there there'll be one or two more acquisitions uh, to come. But what we have introduced moving forward is you know the, on both the men's and the women's side. So on the on the women's side of things, so the live the live live team, which is obviously a, a giant sponsored team as well. They will be coming our our direct feeder team. So uh, for for the women, it, it's it's a big jump straight out. Of, once you get out of juniors, it's juniors, the best in the world. There is no under thirty three category as stands for women's cycling. I, I think it will come. I think it will be only a couple of years away. But we, what we've done now is we've got a direct feeder team. So the live team will become our direct development team, which is super exciting for us because you know there's there's young girls coming out of juniors are not ready for the world tour. No, they're not ready to race against Anna Van Buten at 40 years of age with so much experience and so much power. And to give them a stepping stone to our world tour team really bodes well for us developing a clear pathway for the young, for the, for the young girls coming out of coming out of juniors or, or coming out of other sports or wherever, wherever pathway they've came, come through to get into high level cycling. And then on the, uh, on the men's side of things, uh, we have a relationship with Axel Merckx and Axion and uh, and and they will become one of our one of we have a very close relationship and, and partnership with those guys moving forward. That you know, now we're looking even younger and younger. You know, five years ago I wasn't looking at the the junior men's road race at the World Championships. I might have had a bit of a peekaboo on it and have a look at the results. But now people are looking at the junior World Road Championships for men, and uh, there is multiple juniors coming out of uh, coming out of junior cycling straight into the World Tour next year. Now that's that's not for everyone, and people are people are trying to find the next Podgicar. People are trying to find the next Bernal. All these young kids that are able to go straight from juniors to be very competitive uh, professionals straight away. And the sport is changing, but what we what we have now is another pathway for young young riders to come out of juniors into a team that has had a lot of success. Axel's done an incredible job over the years, developed so many young professionals. And they are a stepping stone to hopefully come into our team when they're ready. So now we're moving into the future with four teams, two develop two teams that are purely for development, and then obviously the two world tour teams. So it's an exciting time for our organisation moving forward that uh, we've got a clear pathway we can offer both men and women. Just a corrections corner, sorry Daniel. Just a live correction corner. I, I think I said Lucas Postelberger uh, transfer in the public domain. It certainly is. He's been with you since the start of this season, and he rode the Giro. I don't know who I was thinking of there. Probably, probably uh, Max. Also, probably Max Walshide. Max, maybe Max. Yeah, the junior men's time trial champion, an Aussie rider, Oscar Chamberlain. So presumably, if he wasn't already on your radar, might well be now. Well, he's when, certainly on our. Going back to your previous point, he is certainly on our radar. Um, he will be. He he had already signed. He is going to AG Two R Under Twenty Threes next year on a one year deal. So he'll be he'll be staying there uh, next year. And for example, the young uh, the young girl who won we won both junior time trials as well, both men's and women's. So both of them on our on our radar. And uh, there's some there's some discussions going going on 
multiple discussions around lots of people about you know we want the best young talent in our in our team and that starts in our development team first Matt, how much you talked about the pathway into your team there from axiom um how much of a sort of railroad is that in the sense that well we've had this discussion before about feeder teams losing their alumni to other world tour teams that they're not affiliated to and um yeah, and, and the one of the issues in cycling with no transfer system is there's no compensation with that when that happens. Um, you can effectively select a rider, you can train them, you can ready them for the World Tour, and then they can decide at the moment they want to turn professional that they want to go somewhere else. And um, yeah, that's been a big disincentive for having feeder teams in the past. And um, what's the arrangement going to be on that front, if you can tell us? Yeah, look, I'm not going to go into the details of the, the deal that we have uh, with Axel, but what... Are, we are extremely happy with what he's been doing in the past and we're not here to change how he's developing, how he's changed his structure. The idea is for us to support that team even more. And uh, in, in, in that deal, we, we will be putting some riders of our choice into that team. Axel already had some guys under contract and we there's a, rela- a really good relationship forming between the two organisations. And yeah, it, it's a tricky one as far as, you know, someone comes in with a big checkbook uh, and offers a hell of a lot of money for them to go elsewhere. That's that's true, and at the moment there is no there's no way around that. But what we can do is we can we can have an influence on where they go because at the end of the day, fi- the financial benefit is one thing, but at the end of the day, there's also you, you only get one bite at the cherry, and 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 some young athletes are not ready to go into the world tour, and if and if you go into the world tour. One year too early, two years too early. What I can see happening in the future with 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 cycling in general is more young athletes will get the opportunity. And I've seen this over the last two or three years, and I hadn't seen it before. There will be more athletes get the opportunity to turn professional, but there will also be more 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 athletes whose careers will be finishing at the age of twenty three and twenty four. It's I don't like it, I don't, I don't, but it's it's. It's how it's how how our sport's developing, and I think our sport is going down the way of, of football. I think three to four years time, I would see most world tour teams will have their own academy. Now, what does that academy look like? A lot will depend on budget. A lot will depend on uh, relationships you have with other organisations. But what you want to do is you want to get young athletes in your system, in your culture, and 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 sort of weed out the good ones from the bad ones. And that's not just about physical. That's not just about numbers. That's about that's about young people who fit into your culture because at the end of the day, teams shouldn't change or a culture shouldn't change. Okay, teams and cultures change a little bit left, a little bit right because of the athletes. But at the end of the day, you want people who fit in the culture that you've created, not the other way around. And, and I think the best way to the best way to know individuals is having them inside, having them inside your organization, and, and the earlier the better. Matt, when, just finally on this, when you say that the sort of churn has been quite significant in the last three or four years, um, a lot of guys have been blooded and it's not worked, um, not in your team necessarily, but across the world tour. When it doesn't work, what's the most common sort of failing? Is it is it that the wrong rider was maybe identified, the talent wasn't mature, or is it something, one aspect of living as a world tour pro now that guys are particularly struggling with do you think i think it's a combination of everything you just said i, I think one there's the physical maturity we, we all know that 
certain individuals mature at different ages. Some 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 young rider at 18, both male or female. Some of those athletes are a different athlete at the age of 22. But if they've been forced to turn professional at 19 years of age, well, they're, they've come into the big league without being physically mature enough. That's one physical. Then there's maturity. Yeah. At 18 years of age, I wasn't mature enough to be a professional. I wasn't, and I didn't, my, I was, to me, it was a dream to turn professional at that age. And all, all it was was a dream. It, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of, with, with money comes pressure. With money comes, it comes expectation. And at the age of 18, 19, 20 years of age, making money at that, and making a lot of money in that period, some people can't handle that pressure. Uh, you know, basically, you're coming straight out of high school. Straight into straight into the world tour, straight into professional. The person was professional sport. Yeah, it's not football money, but for a neo pro now, we can still be talking about 60, 70, 80, 90,000 euros and up, can't we? And yeah, for an eighteen-year-old, that's significant. That's more than the, you don't get that on a paper round, do you? Or, you, you don't or on a podcast. You, you <laughs> don't, Daniel. But there's 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 also some numbers. There's also some numbers being thrown around for 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 young men. Straight out of juniors, that is considerably higher than the numbers you just mentioned. Considerably higher, and that—that's a lot of pressure for a nineteen-year-old who's just finished, who's maybe just finished high school. Who, you know, at eighteen, I was a pretty, pretty loose young fella. Uh, what, would you, what would you have done with seventy grand a year, Matt, at age eighteen? What would we all have done? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I've done with five hundred. some that's for serious sure. trouble. <laughs> I don't know what I've done with 500 and, and there's, you know, you've heard stories over the years that there, there has been some, there has been some young guys who have turned, turned professional with money. There was a lot higher than that. And that's, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. And not everyone's mature enough to handle that pressure. Not everyone's mature enough to handle the world of professional sport. I mean, this is at the end of the day, this is business as well. And, and that's why I think having a development team and, and giving giving those individuals a year or two more to settle into the world of, and the business of professional cycling is, is only a win. And and, and I, I, when you're talking to parents, I'm talking to parents now, <laughs> parents of eighteen year olds, or you know, if I if you told me ten years ago that I'd be sitting down and talking to seventeen year olds with their parents. And explaining how we're gonna how we're gonna look after your child, you know, develop as a person and develop in the world of professional sport. I, I, I wouldn't have fathomed that ten years ago. Would not have fathomed, and that's that's another element of our sport that has changed quickly. Just on that, and you mentioned earlier that you know there might be riders whose career in the world tour is coming to an end at twenty three, twenty four. Uh, you talked about how you've got your eyes on. Uh, the younger end of the spectrum, but also is it important to make sure that in that churn there aren't some actually very good athletes that are being lost that perhaps it hasn't worked out for them at another team? I mean, I know it's a perhaps an outlier, but the case of James Shaw, for example, who turned pro very young for Lotto, um, didn't really make it with them, regrouped, went back and raced domestically in the UK yep. and then has come again and, and had a very good couple of weeks at the Tour de France, didn't he? I mean, do you think that your job also is to kind of look out for riders that maybe have shown something but haven't 
perhaps fitted in the culture of another team or haven't been mature enough either physically or mentally for uh, the requirements of the job? Just if I can interject um, to give a bit of context as well. Um, I know, Matt, that you're a colleague of yours, uh, Marco Pinotti, who's sort of a performance manager, performance director at your team. He's a big advocate um, of uh, an Italian rider called Luca uh, Vergalito, who's riding for Alperson this year, who was picked up... I think he's 27, and he was he won the Swift Academy, didn't he? He's a great example of that. And Marco says, well, it's an ex- it's it's evidence of something somewhere in a system um, a few years ago failing um, that he, his talent wasn't noticed earlier. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to the to the to a team like ours is that's where the moneyball system comes into place. That you know we've we haven't got the budget that we can just go around and sweep up the best young kids on with their data. Uh, and it's like throwing eggs at a wall, isn't it? You know, if you're throwing 10 eggs at a wall and you can afford to do that, and if two of them don't crack, well, then you've got two superstars. But teams with budgets that are a little bit smaller than others can't afford to waste money on those talents. We have to do our due diligence probably at an even higher level than the teams that have money. And I think and a place that we also do and can look is is at the biggest teams because at the end of the day, when, if you look at the, the biggest teams in the world and the amount of budget they have and the amount of opportunity that some of those people don't get, well, they're, they're the ones you come in and swoop in from the side. And you can offer, what we can offer is something that a team at other World Tour teams can't offer, and that's leadership in certain races. And the perfect example for us this year has been Eddie Dunbar. You know, he, he's a guy who couldn't make the roster of a Grand Tour uh, on Ineos. And he comes to us the first uh, first chance and and runs a very very respectable ride in in the Giro d'Italia and he's in his second Grand Tour ever, so you know that's that's where we've also got to look at, at people who are not getting opportunities in the big teams as well because, you know, it doesn't matter how much money that you've got, there's only so much time in in a day and giving attention to people to human beings takes time, not money that takes time, and uh, I think even the biggest teams struggle with managing and caring for 30 individuals just on throwing eggs throwing eggs at a wall matt if you hard boil them first you've got a better chance of them not breaking but you know yeah um, maybe maybe stretching that analogy (laughs) (laughs) the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science well, we're getting pretty close to the Vuelta a España. We'll be giving you daily coverage from the Vuelta podcast every day. We're going to do a preview next week. But we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk Vuelta a España with Matt. Matt, uh, just looking back on your Vuelta record, your distinguished Vuelta record, um, you are part of a winning team, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of times. Um, rode four Vueltas. Um, I also set you some homework before this episode, asked you if you've got any cracking Vuelta yarns for us. Any good stories from your time at the Vuelta? Well, there is, but you also said you wanted them uh, PG. Oh, family friendly. You wanted yeah. family friendly. So when it comes to family friendly <laughs> stories, I'm sorry I came up uh, not with too much. But the um, the, the Welter is a race that I've yeah done a lot of. Rode with Roberto Harris and uh, Levo Leipheimer back in back in the day. There had some good success there with with Harris winning winning edition and obviously uh, Harris, who of course Harris, who of course is reinstated. He officially he failed a test for EPO and is now reinstated after a very lengthy appeal process as the winner of those welters. I think I'm I think I'm correct in saying one thing I don't know is actually which one it was. He's won four or five welters, but uh, I was part of one. He won in uh, two thousand and two or three. I can't even remember. We lost one. Well, it was two thousand and three because two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. He lost the jersey on the last stage. 
in that time trial from Warner Brothers World into into the Bernabeu Stadium, the long time trial. We lost the lost the jersey on the last day, and then the next year he did end up winning it but in front of uh, uh, Nozal. Nozal, he cracked Nozal, cracked two or three days from the finish of Navasarada. He cracked on Navasarada in 203. Nozal, who did become a long-distance lorry driver. There was this urban myth for years about Iban Mayo becoming a long-distance lorry driver. And the person, the first person who put that story into print got it wrong. It was actually Nozal that they were talking about. Yeah, Harris, I, I'm afraid I did more research on Robert De Niro than I did Roberto Harris today. Four of welters he won. Four of welters. 2000 and then 2003, four and five. And of course, now, Matt, you live in Spain. I've lived in Spain for many years now. And you live well on the route of this Vuelta España. Um, you live in Oliva, don't you? And we're going to Oliva down there on the Costa Blanca. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've got a sta- stage finish not too far from my house. But it's, it's a stage that starts in uh, Requina, across the, goes across to Valencia, just straight down the coast. So it'll look great on television. It's a beach beachside uh, suburb, uh, beachside town, uh, 20,000, people. And uh, then the next day is a stage from Denia inland. Uh, pretty tough stage. Uh, it starts on the coast and goes, and especially we've got the heat that we have at the moment. It'll be uh, it'll be a rude one, uh, terrain wise and and temperature wise, because I do live on the coast and it usually doesn't get too much above 30, 32. But you go inland over that first range and you're gonna have seven, six or seven degrees hotter, and you know the race will start at midday, so the whole stage will be in the, in the heat of the day. But uh, now I've got some fond memories, obviously. You know, being there with Simon there in 2018, winning the Welter was was incredible, and uh, we've got a we've got a really good team this year in what is probably one of the deepest Welter fields we've seen for a long, long time. What can you tell us about that team, Matt? Not officially announced yet. Yeah, all I can say a big chunk of the team. Yeah, you know, we've seen that Eddie Dunbar has said that he'll be going to to the Welter, but a big chunk of our team will be the team that went to the Giro. Uh, and then we're giving some some young guys some exciting opportunities in their first grand tours. So the team will be named in the next few days. But uh, it's a team there. We're going with high ambitions for for stage wins and also supporting Eddie uh, as good as we can. Matt, it's been billed as the big showdown rematch between well Remco and Roglic didn't really happen at the Giro. It was it was happening until it was curtailed by Remco's COVID positive. And then we've got Winger guy in the mix. It is a re- rematch between Roglic and Geraint Thomas. Also, uh, Juan Ayuso is going to be there. There are people who fancy him to upset all of that lot and win his first Grand Tour. Um, where do you stand? I mean, bearing in mind that your your pronostics at the Tour de France um, were not of the highest standard. Um, who's going to win this one, man? Why? What kind of race are we going to see? How's it going to pan out? Yeah, that's well, that's the the million dollar question, isn't it? We've got obviously. People, people, people don't forget this. There's one very important battle that's going to happen there as well, besides winning the Welter, and that's that's and it doesn't get talked about too much in the media as well. Is world number one, the world number one team. I know that Jumbo and UAE are, are going head to head. They're going head to head in everything they do, and both are looking to claim that world number one ranking at the end of the season. And it's it's very close at the moment. I actually haven't looked for the last ten days of how close it is, but obviously the Welter will have a a big part of that. I think I think Jumbo are probably going in with a slightly stronger team with uh with a combo of Indigard and Rodzik over Almeida and Ayuso. Uh, um but both have incredible teams and both have you know, incredible riders that will be that will be racing hard against each other. Evan Apool, you know, he hasn't got a teammate who that he can bounce off. 
But we saw last year, obviously winning the welter, he has the ability, the ability and form to challenge anyone. And then there's there's other 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 riders, other people. I haven't seen the final start list there, but the uh, I know the organizer will be licking his lips there with uh, the battles we will see, and we're going to see it early. What what something that is a, is a bit of a uh, and the norm at the welter is it's all over the place. As far as, you know, we're going on with team's time trial day one. We're going into Andorra stage three. Uh, so you've got your first mountain stage within three days of the start. So what I what I do predict is I do predict big gaps early, which means that there will be a lot of breakaways sailing down the road in, in this year's Welter. So I think teams who haven't picked rosters that have guys who are capable of winning in breakaways are going to have a hard time winning in this year's welter, because I do, I do see a hell of a lot of opportunities for the opportunist. There'll, there'll be the GC battle that will start day will start on day one, but I, I do see a lot of opportunities for people to get down the road and win from breakaways, just because of the, of the nature of the sport. I haven't seen the list of sprinters, but I don't suspect there'll be too many of them, um, just because they've made the race so hard that you know to stick around for three weeks for maybe six opportunities. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's hard yakka. That's, you know, that's, a, that's hard work. That's hard work sticking around as a sprinter and suffering through 21 stages of, of pain and, and mountains for the, for the, for the opportunity to only have six sprints. You know, I'm sure, all, I'm sure all six of them won't be sprints. Um, but I, I don't see a high level sprint field there because I think there's a lot on outside of, outside of the welter for the sprinters. But I do see, uh, obviously, some of the world's best climbers battling it out there over three weeks. And the, the cream of the cream of, uh, of our GC guys, uh, most of them, are lining up uh, on the start line. Matt, you mentioned the well, Cold War, my words, not yours, between Jumbo Visma and UAE. I, I had some stories, I'm sure you definitely heard these stories, at the Tour de France about the, so the radio communications we know will be in broadcast, some of them, um, during the Tour de France. And I heard that one of those teams was pretty aggrieved early on because they thought the other one of those teams was disconnecting their radio deliberately or somehow sabotaging these communications to make sure they didn't make it to air. Um, don't know if that's true, but it's all all good, clean, clean-ish fun, clean-ish fun. Yeah, well, that's, that's the, they're the teams who signed up for Netflix. There was a lot of people, extra people around there. And I don't know, if I was going to... If I, if you know, Netflix didn't approach our team, they, they stuck with the the same characters as the year before. Yeah, we, obviously, we, no one's got anything to hide except for the fact no one wants their live tactics broadcasted, do they? And you saw one of the days there, the UAE. I think it was this, was it the last mountain stage? I think the UAE had agreed on two or three stages or three or four stages in the whole welter, and they broadcast some mumbo jumbo. No, I don't. I wouldn't want my tactics to be live on television. And, I don't know and I don't understand the exact setup those Netflix teams had of what was broadcasted, what what wasn't. I know there was people there that they were mic'd for a lot of the race. They were they did have microphones in the car uh, and they were picking and choosing what was broadcast as live on television, which uh, people are sensitive about. Lionel, you want to wait until next week for you to prognost- prognosticate about the Vuelta? Should we wait for our preview episode? Well, the interesting thing, Jumbo Visma are obviously trying to complete the clean sweep, aren't they? Win all three Grand Tours in the same season. Uh, Matt, I was just going to kind of roll back. This this week feels kind of strange, doesn't it? Between the World Championships and the Vuelta, um, there's a lot of racing going on. Four stage races all happening at the same time. 
I mean, as a sports director, you're obviously not watching them now because you're recording the podcast with us. But how much do you have eyes on the racing when you're at home and how much of it will you, you know, catch up on? Well, I, I hate to disappoint you, but I actually am watching uh, Arctic, <laughs> Arctic Race as we speak. <laughs> Arctic Race in the background here, eight kilometres to go. I, I do. I have eyes on a lot of racing. I have eyes on a lot of racing. And I, you've got to. You've got to because it's the best way to work out lots of different things, how different teams play out. You know, you're going into a race. Uh, here, our, for example, at Arctic Race, we've got a, a, a pretty eclectic group of guys there. We've got a couple of guys coming back off injury that haven't raced for a year, and we've got some young guys who are looking for opportunities to step up in some sprints. So it's um you've got to have eyes on races, and it's 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 the best way. It's it's our study. It's it's the best way to know how your riders are going, but also how other riders are going. Have you? Well, they're they're all kind of finishing at different times as we speak. The Tour of Denmark stage has just finished, and I think uh, Matthias Gilmer's well, has won. The stage there. I, I was Denmark. watching that, and I was watching that until the podcast started. But the television is behind me to the left hand side, so <laughs> but the iPad is on, on the front on the right. So I'm only watching one race. I'm only watching one race at the moment. But there, there is a lot of racing on, and uh, I'll go back and watch Burgos. I'll go back and watch the whole lots of Burgos as well when I get a chance this afternoon. But you, you've you've got to have eyes on these races. There, there's there is no there's been no rest or there's no been no come down off the back of the Tour de France where. Now, the World Championships was a great opportunity to to meet a lot of people there and, and do some scouting while I was there, besides my normal, besides my, my official role. And then we're back born back into the races now and uh back into uh you know the races that are getting ready for the welter and also races that are getting ready for uh for what's to come. Well, Lionel, we better release Matt back into the world. I'm sure he's got the Tour du Limousin highlights to watch. He's got the Volta Portugal. Um, <laughs> on, on that note, actually, I did want to mention want to mention the Volta Portugal. A couple of days ago, we had a victory stage win for our good friend, uh, Luis Angel Mate, who we will miss at the Volta Espana this year. The links of Marbella, 39 years old, first win, I think, for 11 years. Um, but has been a great character on our welter podcast over the last few years so um yeah i don't know maybe the links marbella will drop in on us at some point during the welter but he won't be riding which is a shame um matt um we're gonna thank you it's been a pleasure always a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the pod look forward to seeing you at the welter sure you'll probably be offering us some hospitality in oliva um you'll be throwing <laughs> open your doors and then we'll see you there look forward to it no, no, I am. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's it's the home race without being the home race. And, uh, yeah, I've got a busy month ahead, but I'm looking forward to uh, touching base with the team there around the stages where I live there and also uh, busy schedule in Italy with the one-day races and a lot more racing to come between now and the middle of October. So thanks for having me on, guys. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.